book of Isaiah. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. We're picking it up in the middle of the text. I painted the scene before you this morning, and uh, you have the setting in your mind, and you can almost feel like you're one of the captives up in Babylon of, of uh, Jewish descent. And um, we're going to pick it up from there and, and try to get through chapter 46 tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sacred, holy text of Scripture. We believe that the Word of God is without error. It is profitable to teach us. It is going to correct us. It will humble us. It will rebuke us. It will train us for righteousness, that we might be thoroughly prepared for every good deed. Father, tonight we come asking you, begging you to speak to our hearts about idolatry, about the fact that we are servants of the only one true God. And I pray that we would be changed, we would be transformed, humbled, more obedient, more yielded to you, more passionate, zealous for righteousness' sake, eager to proclaim the gospel as Jack so clearly shared tonight, and and also eager to intercede for others, as Sam mentioned. And so, Father, do a work in our heart that we would just be men and women, boys and girls who are changed into the image of Jesus, step by step, degree by degree. Thank you for the text of Scripture that is before us. Give us wisdom of the Holy Spirit to understand it and power of the Holy Spirit to obey. And may Jesus be glorified in our sight. Amen. So remember, this text tonight puts you back in Babylon. In the days of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the burning fiery furnace, the lion's den, the whole works, you are right there in the midst of it. You have been given Isaiah's writing, although Isaiah's been dead for about 150 years. There's been a promise of God. God's promise is, you must go back to Judah. You must go to Jerusalem, and I will bring a man named Cyrus to liberate you. He is a Gentile. Get out of your comfort zone. Melissa and I were talking about it this afternoon during lunch. We went home. We had a very nice lunch. And, and Melissa mentioned and said, hey, it would almost be like for you and I, or for me particularly, for the Lord to say to me, Brian, get up out of the U.S. of A. and go back to Finland. Get your own way back there, but go back there and live in Finland and do it. And I'd be like, but wait a minute. I was born in the U.S., my family's here, my friends here, my job's here, my church is here. Everything is here. Why would I want to leave? But this is what God was asking the Jewish people to do. They'd been in Babylon long enough. The punishment has been over. Time to get out of there. The problem was the Jewish people didn't like God's plan. They, they were fearful of the unknown territory, the wild beasts that might get them, the bandits, the robbers, all of that from the book of Ezra we can see in chapter 10. But not only were they afraid but they also didn't like God interfering with their plans. They preferred the wooden statue gods that they could take and move and place wherever they want. And if they wanted to do something different, they could simply hide their God and put him away for a while and bring him out whenever, whenever it was convenient. So God speaks to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, clearly portrayed to the Jewish people, there is no other God like me. There's no other God that can order all the events of human history and keep everything going to come out with a perfect plan. Tell them to forsake and abandon the gods of Babylon and trust me, the one true living God. And that's what you and I are being called to do in the church age, to abandon anything that, uh, that sets our affection other than God. 
if Jesus Christ is not the very center of our life, the gospel is not the very center, if it's not what causes us to get excited and to wake up in the morning and to praise the Lord, then something is majorly wrong. And just like Judah was, was, uh, was told to do, we need to return to the Lord, get back in fellowship with him. And so here it is. We just saw this morning in verses 9 and 10 that they were striving with their maker. And Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, it is not the clay's position to strive against the potter. The potter has the right to do whatever he wants in your life. He wants to put you as a missionary in a far land. That's his prerogative. He wants to keep you right here. That's his prerogative. He's the one that gives us our families. You can't complain about your families. God put you there. You can't complain about where you live. God put us here. We, we have no right to strive against our master, and neither can a child say to their parents, Mom and Dad, what are you doing? Why are you having a child? Um, there's no place for the child to, to rebuke the parents. It's inappropriate to question the parents regarding those things. The parent is the parent, and the child is the child, and God is our parent, and he is our master. So verse 11 picks it up in the scene. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, his response to their striving with the master, he is the Holy One of Israel and his maker. God is the maker of Israel, and by the way, he is our maker as well. Ask, it's almost a, uh, a sarcastic comment here in verse 11. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me. You think you're smart? You ask of me about how I should treat the sons of, of Israel. And you tell me what I should be doing as God. You can't because you don't know the whole picture. You can't do anything. So God is being very sarcastic in verse 11 saying, I'm in control. You are foolish to even command me or order me around like I'm your puppet. God says, I am God. You are my servant and you are my, ch my children. And that is the way it is. Verse 12, I have made the earth, the Lord says, and I created man on it. He's the one that gets all the credit for making us and forming us. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens. You know how they mocked God and said, God, you're like a potter with no hands. I don't know. I think there's one requirement for a potter, and that is to be able to work the, the clay. And they were mocking God, saying, Lord, we're the clay, but you're like a potter with no hands. You don't know what you're doing in our life. And here, God says, listen, my hands are very talented. They stretched out the universe. I created everything, God said. You can't question me or, or what he's doing in his sovereign purpose. And all of their host I have commanded, God says. Specifically, he raised up Cyrus. Verse 13, I have raised Cyrus up in righteousness, meaning in God's righteous ways, and I will direct all of his ways. It doesn't mean Cyrus was a believer. It just means that God chose Cyrus, this unbelieving Gentile king, for a purpose that fulfills his plan. So he's going to direct all of Cyrus's ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. He's going to do it not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. I wish we had time, but we don't. But listen, go to, uh, someday this week, go to Ezra 1. It's interesting because Cyrus does conquer, Cyrus the Persian does conquer Babylon. And what he does at the very beginning is he writes an edict, and he says, all right, Jewish people, you've been in the land 70 years. It's time for you to go home. Go back to Jerusalem, build the temple, build the walls. Here are the resources. Here are the supplies. He gave the temple treasuries that Nebuchadnezzar stole. He gave them back to the Jewish people and said, take these with you. Go, and if you need anything else, let me know. I'll write you a check. 
But he didn't, he didn't let the Jewish people go back to Jerusalem and then ask for a price or a reward. Isn't that, isn't that strange for a pagan king? What ruler does anything without a benefit to himself? Cyrus was willing to let go of a large Jewish population that was part of his culture and let them go with all the treasury that they came with, and, it was, and he got nothing for it. He just lost and lost and lost in the whole deal. Only God could arrange that situation. Normally, a, a ruler would have said, you can never leave, you're my slaves, you'll work for me, and I'll get all of the taxes from you. He's going to lose them when they go back to the promised land, and he knows it. So this is the fulfillment of Scripture. Don't we have a great God? Look at verse 14. I see two things here. Now, beginning in verse 14. And get excited about this, because God is going to say something. God is going to say this. He is going to rescue Israel and save them from their sins. And as a result, Gentile nations will be attracted to Jesus. Because God is going to do all of this through Cyrus and the Jewish people, people will hear and see the Jewish families, and they will be attracted to Jesus. And isn't that what we want at faith? We want our families and our children to know and to love the Lord and to live for him, live with godly testimonies so that people in our schools and our community would say, I want our families to be like that. I want our families to be like the Blevins or the Habermans or the Scobes. We, how do we have our children trained in godliness and righteousness? What's the secret? What's the key? And we simply point them to Jesus Christ. We want people to be drawn to Jesus Christ because of our very lives. We are salt and we are light. So God says, Jewish people, you are going to be salt and light, and you will bring some nations to their knees worshiping Jesus. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt, all of their wealth, and the merchandise of Cush, and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you, meaning Israel is going to get the prominent place in all the world. They'll be the number one nation. Other nations will walk behind Israel. They shall come over in chains, not literally, but I think metaphorically even, in the sense that they will be the servants of Israel in the millennial kingdom. In the kingdom, when Jesus is sitting on his throne in body form, other nations will come and they will serve the Jewish people. They will take care of the Jewish people and bring their wealth to Jerusalem and give it to Jesus. And it's going to be a phenomenal experience with the global scene at the millennial kingdom. They're going to come over in chains and they shall bow down to you, not in worship, but they will humble themselves before the Jewish people. And they shall make supplication to you saying, listen to this, surely God is in you. So God's will and God's plan is that people would see Jesus in us. And when they see Jesus in us, they get attracted. They want to know. I've had people ask me even at school. They'll say, Brian, such and such a family goes to your church, and their kids are respectful. They follow directions. They're not unruly. What is the secret with these families? And I'll say, you know what the secret is? It's good parenting, but it's biblical parenting. It is because they have a relationship with Jesus. They're dealing with sin issues of the heart. It's such a great conversation, that, and people are attracted, and they're wondering, how could our family be like that? That is what we want to do. We want to be magnets for Christ, magnifying the Lord Jesus in our lives. So they're going to say, surely God is in you, Jewish people, and there is no other, there is no other God. They're going to confess, no other God but Jesus. Verse 15, the praise, truly, you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior, 
they shall be ashamed. The, the rejectors of Jesus, the unbelievers, shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are the makers of idols. Anybody following other, other gods in this world, fame of Hollywood, sports, you name it, they're going to be ashamed and disgraced in the final day. They will be in great confusion. But look at verse 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. They can never lose it. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Listen, there are only two groups of people on this planet. Those who believe in Jesus and have everlasting salvation and they'll never be shamed or disgraced. And those who reject Jesus, who will have everlasting shame, everlasting guilt, everlasting condemnation. There's only two groups of people. And here, what is the goal of Israel? They shall be saved. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and he made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. This is our God. He can do all of these things. He is the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret. It's public knowledge about Israel. He has not spoken in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob... Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Jesus said it, and it is going to happen, regardless of what anybody says. If, if we do not line up with Israel, we are wrong. We're on the wrong side. All Israel will be saved someday. Verse 20. Now he talks to the Gentile people. He just said that Jewish people are going to have everlasting salvation. What about the Gentiles? Verse 20. The Gentiles also get salvation. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. Some people from every nation will be saved. Some Kenyans, some people from Tanzania, people from Mozambique, people from South Africa, from every part of South America, Central America, they will be saved and they will come and bow before Jesus because they have escaped from the idolatry of the nations. They, the idol worshipers, have no knowledge. Here it is. They carry the wood of their carved image. Remember that phrase, because all of this ties together. They carry the wood of their carved image, and they pray to a God that cannot save. These idol worshipers, they have to carry their God around with them. All right? Keep that in your mind. And they do pray to a God, but this God cannot save them. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Can these pagan gods declare anything? No. Who has told it from that time? Nobody. Have not I the Lord? Yes. And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. There's a cry for salvation. Look to me and be saved. It is by grace alone. Look to the Lord and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's the gospel that Jack shared tonight. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and it shall not return, meaning it will not return empty. It's going to happen. Here's what it is. That to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Paul quotes that in Philippians chapter 2. Every man, woman, boy, and girl on earth is going to bow their knee to Jesus. But it is how and when. Are they going to bow as a child of God in reverence and adoration? Or are they going to bow the, to the name of Jesus as an enemy and a rebel? In eternal hell. It's just, that's the only option. The two options. It is going to happen that every knee shall bow. And that is going to be one tremendous day. Can you imagine? At the great white throne. You know what that scene is in Revelation 20? 
you and I have our glorified bodies, we're already bowing the knee to Jesus. But when Jesus is on the seat of judgment and all the unsaved from, from um, Cain, from Cain and all of the unsaved of all the generations, millions upon millions upon millions of people in the audience. And Jesus pronounces judgment on them. And they're being cast into the lake of fire. But before they go to the lake of fire, they get on their knees and they say, Jesus is Lord. And then Jesus says, be gone from me into everlasting punishment. And there they go. And then we bow our knees at the same time. And so every creature bows their knee before Jesus. Some headed for eternal destruction and some for eternal happiness and joy. This is what makes the gospel such a passionate part of our life. We want more and more worshipers of God and less and less rebels of God. So this is the scene before us. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess or take an oath. What's the oath? Jesus is Lord. That's the oath that they will take. How do I know? Because it's in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. I have strength in the Lord because of his righteousness. To him men shall come. Those are the believers. And all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. See, there's two groups. Again, right here. One group comes to the Lord in righteousness and strength. The other group, they are incensed. In the Hebrew, it's a deliberate anger. They're angry at the Lord. They want to fight him still if they could. They're incensed against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and they shall glory. So what's the promise? Get out of Babylon. Get back to Jerusalem. Follow the will of the Lord. Trust him and you will be saved. Now the problem is they didn't get back in the land and they didn't trust him. So God dispersed them to all the nations for 2,000 years, and they're still dispersed. They're still under judgment. But is God going to bring them back and have, have them be a believing nation again? You bet you will. It's going to be a believing nation in Israel someday soon. All right, now quickly, we're going to move into chapter 46. Very, 13 verses. It won't, go very, it won't go very long. This is really neat. Are you with me, everybody? Okay. Here's the, here's the text of chapter 46. You and I are, ba- are Babylonian captives, right? We're Jewish people. We've been here 70 years. We don't want to leave. God says you have to leave, and now we have to leave. So there were two gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo. Bel, the god Be- Bel, was, uh, again, a false god. He didn't exist. But he was the chief god of Babylon. So sometimes people had the name Belshazzar, and the Bel comes from the god of Babylon, the chief god. Nebo meant to speak, and Nebo was like the second god. He was the son of Bel. Nebo was the god that they believed wrote the destiny of every person in Babylon. Every year, he, the god, the god um, Nebo would write down your destiny for the year, what would happen. It's kind of like the horoscope. People read uh, horoscopes. I can't stand that. I always warn people to stay away from that type of witchcraft. People read their horoscope and think, oh, this is what happens this month for me, or this is what happens this week. That is what, what Nebo did. Nebo wrote the horoscope is what he did, telling people what your life is going to be like in the next month. Um, 
by the way, remember the king of Babylon? What was his name? Nebuchadnezzar comes from Nebo. Nebuchadnezzar is how you actually would say it. And it comes from that god. They were the two most prominent gods of Babylon. And what we get in chapter 46, Babylon has been conquered by who? Cyrus, the Persian. So Cyrus has now conquered Babylon, and the two most prominent gods, which you would think would be the most powerful, are actually stuffed in somebody's sack. Can you picture this? Stuffed in somebody's backpack. They stole the gods of Babylon, and they put, the, they put them on a donkey, and the donkey is going off out of Babylon, and the two false gods are just going along the donkey in a sack, almost like they are bowing down to the one true God of Israel. It's, it's, very, it's kind of very clever and humorous, but this is, this is what we get. So are you, are you picturing this? God is going to say, make some statements about false gods. He's going to make some statements about himself and give us some encouragement. Chapter 46. Bell bows down. So you now can picture the statue. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Why? Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. The gods of Babylon were actually riding on beasts in, in some type of sack or bag. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. These false gods were heavy weights, and they, were, they caused the donkey and the cattle to get tired because they had to carry the false gods. So my key word for this text, for this whole, er- this whole scene, is carry. Who carries you? What do you carry? Here, they were carrying their, their gods, and their gods were a heavy, heavy burden to them. It says, the burden was to the weary beast. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. So the, the, the two prominent gods of Babylon are, wearing, are weighing down this donkey or these, these cattle, and they can't deliver themselves from cap- captivity. How powerful are these gods? They are not powerful. They have no power. As a matter of fact, all they are is dead weight. All right, I can tell you this right now. Any God that you serve apart from Jesus Christ, any sin you commit is a heavy burden. Sin has a pleasure for a moment, right? Uh, If sin didn't have a pleasure, why would we even do it? Sin has pleasure for a moment, but it changes from pleasure to a heavy, heavy weight. It weighs on us. It puts us down. It causes physical illness. It causes spiritual depression. Sin is a heavy, heavy weight. I've mentioned it before, but I've sat with people in the last 20 years, and I have said, listen, here's what I observe in your life. You are asking and seeking counsel. Here's what God says. God says, abandon your sin. Stop sinning and follow Jesus. Serve him. Read the word of God. Be involved in the local church. Be accountable to one another. But do not continue to live in sin. And I've had people say to me, Pastor, I won't do that. I will continue to live how I want. 20 years later, they are heavily burdened in sin. They look 50 years older, not 20. It is because the weight of sin is a heavy burden. And these false gods, you have to carry them. If you want them with you, you've got to carry them. Now contrast that with the next text, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, 
and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been, listen to this, upheld by me from birth. See the word carry there? Israel was carried from birth by God who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and I will deliver you. See, see the kind of God we have? Sin, we carry sin about in us. We carry sin in us, and it's a heavy weight, and it's harsh. It, it's a terrible master. God, on the other hand, he's the one that carries us. I look at, like, a, a Bill Knight or an Arlene McGinnis, who are they're suffering right now physically, but God is carrying them. God is, is really doing an incredible work carrying them. I think about a... Um, all of our family and friends who are, who, who are going through things, God carry, carries us through every single trial. Every child of his is being taken care of. See the contrast? Our God is a God that carries us. These false gods, verses 5 through 7. These false gods are gods that are made, and they're made without any saving power. Verse 5. To whom will you liken me? God says, and who will you make me equal to? Who will you compare me that we should be alike? Is there any God that we could say is anything close to Jesus? No, nothing. Verse 6. They lavish gold out of a bag. See, they're making an idol again. They lavish gold out of a bag. They weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it. They have to carry their false gods. They set it in its place, and it stands. From its place, it shall not move. What a contrast to our God, who is with us everywhere we go, carrying us and taking care of us all, the, all the, along the way. I, I guarantee you, the rest of my life, until the day I get to heaven, God is carrying me on this journey in er, on earth. I may suffer greatly. I may have great disease. I may have great trials and great troubles. I may lose everything, but he is still carrying me until the day I die. People who do not know Christ are carrying the weight of their false gods on them. It says they carry their gods around, and the gods cannot move. Look at the end of verse 7. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. So the false gods, they have to be made and fashioned, and they cannot save. There's no power. Why do people go there? And then contrast that with verses 8, 8 to 11. Here's our God who makes things happen. He's not made. He's unmade. He's uncreated. But God makes things happen. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O oh you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. He's talking to Judah. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God can take care of himself. He can accomplish his will. Here's one of his aspects of his will. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east. What man did God raise up from the east to conquer Babylon so they could get out? Cyrus. Cyrus is the bird of prey. God says, you want me to show you power? I'm not just a God who can't move that you fashion according to your own image. God says, I'm God who can do anything I want. I can call a bird of prey from the east, and he will deliver. He will do exactly what I speak. 
Isn't it funny? Listen real quick. God can raise up Cyrus, an unbelieving Gentile king, and Cyrus does the will of God, and yet his own children in the church sometimes won't do his will. Is it tragic that Cyrus, some pagan king, would say, hmm, I'm God's tool to do this. I'm going to do it. When God looks at us in the church and says, hey, I want all my tools to be busy doing something, and we say, no, Lord, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do this. I, I know what your will is, but I refuse. It is, again, a travesty that the church would ever respond to God like that. But here, he, verse 11, he calls a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel. He's going to follow the will of the Lord from a far country. It's called Persia. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. And as a result, everybody will know God is God, and he is God alone. So God is a God who makes things happen. And then verse 12 and 13, he is a God who saves people. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. See, God is a saving God. Not, not only does he make things happen, he orchestrates all the events of life, but he saves us and delivers us. The promise in verses 12 and 13, the false gods cannot save out of trouble. God says, I can deliver. I can deliver every single time. He's going to deliver in a place called Zion. Wh what is Zion, by the way? Another name for Zion? Jerusalem. He's going to place salvation in Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Where does our salvation come from? Who died for us on the cross? Jesus. And where did Jesus die? What city? Jerusalem. God did bring salvation right to Jerusalem, to Zion, where Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And Israel is going to be glorified because of it. Now, this, this righteousness in verse 13 is near. How near is righteousness? It is simply anybody on this earth trusting Jesus. It is that near. Moses said in Deuteronomy, and then Paul quotes him in Romans 10, righteousness, salvation of the Lord is so near. It is not far away. You don't have to go up to heaven to find salvation. You don't have to go to Africa to find salvation. Salvation is so near, you hear the gospel and you believe it. That's how near it is. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. You simply have to believe it. And that's the message. Our God is a God who makes things happen, and he's a God who saves. So quickly, a concluding thought. I want you to find comfort in this in a few areas. First of all, abandon any desires and affections that are not of God. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. For the love of the Father is not in those things. We need to know what do we love and what do we worship. Everybody in this room, we are naturally born worshipers. We're born worshiping self. Sorry, Hannah, but you were born uh, a couple days ago, uh, very selfish, and, and she uh, is, is going to start just wanting me, 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 crying if she doesn't get what she needs because that's what babies do. She, she will need to learn from Ian and Carol that, that there is a God, and it's Jesus Christ, and God has done something to remedy 
to take care of our sin issue and our sin problem. So, anything that gets between us and the Lord, we get rid of it. We don't go there. We don't do it. There's nothing that we look at. There's nothing we watch. There's nothing that we eat or drink that would dishonor God, that would give him any disrespect, that would cause him anything because he is the only God. He is worthy of all of our affection, all of our love, all of our devotion. And when that is right, then our, then our relationships horizontally are right with one another. So that's the first challenge. Abandon idolatry. You know what, John? It, it said the Apostle John, who was the last living of the 12 disciples, that um, he was a very old man when he died. Rumor has it, not rumor, tradition has it, so this is not biblical, but tradition has it that he would have to be carried into the church because of his great age. He couldn't walk anymore. He would be carried into the church, and as he was coming down the aisles, the Apostle John would say, children, love one another. Love one another. This is the greatest commandment, that we love one another. Children, love one another. Do you know the last words that he wrote in the first letter of John? Little children, keep yourselves from idolatry. See, John knew idolatry is a, a horrendous pitfall to go into. It steals our affections and it takes away our devotion to the Lord and any usefulness. Okay, secondly, I want you to be assured of this. Every political leader, everything in your life, Everything in the world is being orchestrated for an outcome. The outcome is Jesus physically coming to the planet to establish a rule of righteousness. So do not be alarmed by what's going on in the Middle East or in Africa with any Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab or ISIS or anything. Do not be alarmed by our own country and possible future political leaders. I mean, it's easy to be a, a little um, uptight about the direction of our country. We can do all we can to pray, to proclaim the gospel and seek righteousness, but God is orchestrating all of the events. Now, we have to be doing everything we can to stem the, fl the flood of evil, but we trust him. I'm not alarmed. The world, the world is getting worse and worse. It's a promise. It's God said, in, the, in these last days, their perilous times, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, um, and they will not be lovers of God. Things are going to get worse and worse. I do not expect them to get better and better. Maybe for a short years they can go better, but every decade closer to the Lord's return, it is worse and worse and worse. So we need to be active to train our children, even in VBS, to live wisely, to be prepared for future days of living by faith, because the days in America are not going to be as easy as they are right now. We want our young people to stand strong for Jesus. So we have a lot to do between now and when our children get older. We have much to do, so we must be busy about that. But do not be alarmed. Everything is being orchestrated and, and put into place by God's providence in order to bring about this kingdom of righteousness. And our part, we pray and we witness. And we come here to be built up, to be strengthened in our faith. So I think you can see some of those things. Remember, false gods you have to carry around with you. It's a heavy weight. Get rid of them. The one true living God, he carries you. He loves you. You're going to find out later in Isaiah, he has actually written you in the palm of his hand, um, a very safe and a secure place. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these words of encouragement.
out of Isaiah. We understand these are difficult texts to study and to read through. It's hard to grasp the context, Father, but help us to remember these things so when we read them in our devotions, when we are tempted to idolatry, when we are tempted to forsake your will for our life, that we would be reminded you are the one true God and we don't strive against you. We don't question you. We don't question your way or your will. We simply obey your word. You have given us light for our path through the word of God and we simply trust you and we obey. So thank you, Father, for the future days of righteousness where Jesus will dwell on this earth. Help us to be active to build up the church and to obey your will. Thank you again for our church family and for this very special week of Bible school coming up. May you do a great work in all of our children's hearts. Please, Father, not only in their hearts, train them for righteousness, train them for future duties of pastoring and proclaiming the gospel and and ministering in the church, but also give us new families to reach in the community, families that have never believed in Jesus so that we could disciple them and, and train them in godly living. Thank you again, Father, for the church. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, everybody, and um, enjoy this beautiful evening. Thanks for being here tonight.